Hey, my name is Sean, and I like learning about how things work and why. By day, I'm a designer and researcher, and I moonlight by interviewing exceptional people here on Promise. Every episode of Promise is an open-ended discussion on the idea of Promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, Promise showcases tomorrow's heroes before they get famous. This week, I have a conversation with Jada Anderson, Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Xylo Systems. Xylo Systems is setting out to be the central data hub for all global biodiversity information. We chat about information silos, the huge variety in conservation data, bridging the gaps between that world and tech, how anyone from individuals to corporations can get involved, and the beautiful goal to go out of business. Please enjoy my discussion with Jada Anderson. All right. Today on the show, we have Jada Anderson. Jada is co-founder and chief product officer of Xylo Systems. Xylo Systems is intending to create a central database for biodiversity, but I will let Jada introduce herself and introduce Xylo in a little bit more detail. Thank you. Great to be here, Sean. I am the co-founder and CPO at Xylo. We are working to reverse the rates of species extinction. As I'm sure many people know, species extinctions are accelerating globally due to rising impacts of human development, agriculture, a whole range of things. And we are very reliant on biodiversity for our everyday ecosystem services. And for that reason, we are really looking to help support conservation work and turbocharge their impact so we can make sure we're protecting endangered species. And so the way we're doing that is by supporting conservation organisations in managing their data that they're collecting for conservation work. That includes zoos, not-for-profits, governments, a whole range of organisations are doing really great work on the ground for conservation and helping them manage their data and really find animal stories in numbers so they can provide conservation work with the best informed decisions that they can. So that's one side of things. But we're also looking to support organisations that are actually doing a lot of the impacting on biodiversity. So that means agriculture, construction, land development. A lot of these companies have been focusing on being net zero for a really long time. And carbon is obviously the big bad guy when it comes to climate change, but it's not the full story biodiversity is another really big impact of these industries. And so helping them understand their biodiversity impact is a really important piece of the puzzle so they can start reducing their impact on biodiversity. And so we're using information and data that we're collecting through our work with conservation organizations to help inform how corporates can reduce their impact as well. Awesome. Great introduction. So that takes me to my very first question, actually. You guys are trying to be a centralized hub for all of this biodiversity data. How is the data currently being shared and collected? Yeah, great point. And it's actually one of the big pain points that we started this whole project with. At the moment, across organizations in conservation, that is, 
information's not really being shared at all. And that's a big problem, right? Because biodiversity is a global ecosystem of challenges and organizations are working on their own, collecting hard-earned data to try and understand the impacts that humans are having. But if we're not sharing them, we're actually seeing a lot of duplication of efforts and siloed information. So multiple organizations could be working on rehabilitating koala populations, but they don't actually know what other organizations are doing. And so that's actually where Camille, my co-founder, started. It was supposed to be like Tinder for conservationists. It was supposed to sort of match conservation organizations with other organizations. But we realized that organizations already know about each other, but they don't have that information flow. And so, like you mentioned, we're trying to be a hub for that information so that organizations can leverage the information that other organizations are collecting. And we're also being a source for open source data to be collected as well. So there's so many fantastic citizen science projects out there. Governments are doing great work in collecting data. And if we can leverage all of that information and put it in one aggregated place, then we can make decisions much more efficiently and much more informed in order to have a greater impact. Okay, so you've also introduced Camille, your co-founder. For anybody who's listening, this is Camille Goldson Henry. I'll link both Jada's and Camille's profiles in the show notes. So let's talk about meeting Camille, actually. How did you guys first meet and then come up with Tinder Conservationists and then spiral on into Xylo? Yeah, it's actually probably the reverse. I'll start with where Zylo was born. It actually started with Camille on her own in 2020. Zylo is a COVID baby <laughs> and she'd been working in conservation for almost a decade, working on projects like the Tasmanian Devil, Orange Bellied Parrot, a whole wide array of projects across Australia and the world and had this personal experience of finding that data and the way that data was being managed in those organizations was really old school. It was really sort of analog and slow in how people were making decisions. And so that was where Zyla was born from her own personal frustration and was, yeah, really nutting the idea out for a year or so until she was looking to actually build the product and she was looking for a tech co-founder and advertised on LinkedIn. At the time, I was just finishing up my honours research, researching the impacts of plastic on freshwater fish, and was going, I realised that academia wasn't for me. I wanted to find a role in the real world where I could have a real impact. And I was looking on LinkedIn and found Camille's call out for a CTO. And so just reached out and said, look, I don't feel like I'm probably qualified and I don't have any experience as a CTO, but love the mission. I've got a mathematics background, would love to jump on board. And so we connected really quickly because we both had that common interest and passion for the environment and mitigating our impacts on the environment and went from there. So it was sort of a right time, right place situation. And it's been, um, it's been amazing working together ever since. I actually hadn't heard that founder story, but you said that when you applied to Camille's advertisement that you didn't have a tech background. So how did you guys find yourself from being in, interested in biology and conservation into the world of tech? What was that introduction like? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one because we both have an academic background. Camille also had a vet background as well. And I think there's not many people out there that think about the importance of being interdisciplinary. Through my degree, I did a double degree in maths and biology. So that was my introduction to tech. I'd already been in the maths world and through that done a bit of coding and data science. And so came out the other end and actually realized that I'm in a really unique position to understand how maths is really relevant. I was very lucky to have mentors early in my education that I had a mentor who was using maths to model cancer, ovarian cancer. And I realized that this is a tool that we can really realize the impacts that we can have in biology. So that was my introduction to tech. And obviously, I'm still learning a lot on the job and have building our product. But yeah, we've both had tech in our lives, being in a science background. And from there, we've just been really lucky to have some fantastic mentors guiding us along the way. But it has been a lot of learning on the job. This needs to be done. How are we going to do it? Awesome. And just for anybody who's listening, the day that we're recording is just a couple of days after Zyla Systems has finished an accelerator program. So congratulations to you guys. I'm curious what made you guys look towards joining an accelerator program and how did you find it? Yeah, so Startmate was a 12-week accelerator with funding. So we had 120K of funding at a 1.5 million valuation. So that was definitely a big motivator for us because we were looking for funding and looking to open our seed round. We didn't actually think we were ready for Startmate for the accelerator. I've talked to a few founders since that it is such a well-known accelerator in Australia and New Zealand that you feel like you need to be already getting some traction and need to be somewhere before you can enter. And we were really lucky to have Lauren Kaplan uh, reach out to us and say that you should apply. And we didn't actually think we were ready, but we did and got all the way through and got to be one of the top 12 startups in the accelerator. And I think it was actually fantastic timing for us in hindsight because Startmate being 12 weeks, it gave us a real opportunity to look at um, some of the goals that we were looking to achieve, including opening our seed round, launching our product, validating the corporate market for our corporate product. And those were pretty much our three goals for the course of Startmate. And we pretty much smashed them out of the park in 12 weeks. And so it was really thanks to the Startmate network and the fantastic mentors they have, but also having that 12-week period where you just sprint as hard as you can and get as much done as you can it was game-changing for us. And I think that's been really impactful and I think will continue to be impactful for our progress in the future as well. Yeah, now you know you can do it. Exactly. All right, now let's chat more about Xylo itself and what it does and how it gets stuff done. So at the center of Xylo, of course, is all of the data that you collect. And there's gonna be huge numbers of sources of this data. Let's start with what these sources are. Where do you get data from? Great question. It's really interesting looking at tracking and measuring biodiversity because there are so many different data types that are relevant and are currently being collected. And there's more new types of data being collected into the future as well. So um, if we look at customer specific data, it can be collected by humans about populations that they're monitoring in the wild, whether that's sightings, whether that's breeding in captivity, data that's being collected on population specific information age of individuals, their names, their microchip numbers, a whole range of things. 
But also it's not just about the specific species that you're monitoring. It's actually all about the context and the environment that they're in as well. So we're partnering with a remote sensing company to deploy sensors out into remote environments to collect information on temperature, light, humidity. They've got some amazing sensors for measuring leaf wetness, if that's relevant. A whole range of things to really paint the picture of what does it look like in that environment without having to deploy people to collect those kinds of things on a regular basis. We can have that information in real time. So we've got remote sensing, but we've also got a lot of really interesting satellite. We're using mapping tools a lot. All of that's really relevant. The other really exciting data types that we're looking at bringing into the system soon are camera trap data. Governments in particular are doing fantastic work on long-term monitoring, leaving camera traps out in the wild for up to 10 years and getting sightings of animals, endangered species, on those camera traps and being able to process all that information is something that we're looking at. And also bioacoustics, leaving microphones out in the wild and sensing different bird types and a whole range of animals from those as well. So the options are kind of endless. And again, it's all just about painting that picture of what's going on in that environment, because as soon as humans step into that environment, it's really hard to collect that kind of sensitive information. Actually, just riffing off of that point, if you were to send a researcher out into the field to collect any of this data, what would change? Would, for example, in terms of acoustics you just mentioned, would birds go quiet, say, and then you'd have a harder time measuring their numbers? Is that kind of what happens there? Yeah, there's a lot of people, like a lot of really experienced ecologists do a lot of work out in the field and it is necessary to have humans present for some of that. But ultimately, to get any kind of monitoring, you do need to leave sensors, cameras, out in the wild and leave them for a period because you're right as soon as humans enter the environment there is a potential that they consider that a risk and you don't get the data that you're looking for so that's why camera traps have been a super powerful tool for ecologists for you know it's been massive for the last five to ten years you get to see animal interactions animal behaviors that you just wouldn't see otherwise it's phenomenal some of the shots that people are getting awesome okay so you've got all of this live ingestion of data that's coming in. But in order to track things, you'd have to compare this to historical data, right? And a lot of that would probably be stuff that's printed or just not digitized in some way, shape or form. So how do you guys reconcile those two things? Yeah, and that's a big part of the value that we're looking to bring in our platform as well, because at the moment, historical data can be patchy, but it can also be, like you said, in paper formats. As an example, we've got an early customer that we are currently onboarding and a lot of their paper records, including data about animals bred in captivity for the last five to 10 years is all in paper format. But the plan for us to onboard these kinds of organizations is using AI algorithms to, if you can take a photo of that paper record, you can actually digitize that into a spreadsheet. So that's what we've been doing for ingesting a lot of that. There is a bit of processing and cleaning of that data, but it's really important, like you mentioned, to bring all of that data in because it does give more context to how populations are changing over time. And that's super important as well. I'll also add to that that citizen science and open source data is a great source of information for that. Another example is we've been working on an endangered snail species on Norfolk Island. And the open source records that I've been looking at, the oldest records they have are from like 1910. (laughs) So there's so much information out there on these populations that isn't being leveraged at the moment. And it's really important to bolster customer data with that open source data as well. That is a great segue to my next question, which was going to be about citizen science. 
So I'm all for citizen science. Like I totally believe that people should be engaged in the world that they live in and to help scientific projects where possible. However, from a data perspective, how do you guys ensure that somebody who's not necessarily a scientist like myself can capture data accurately enough for you so that it doesn't just pollute what you're trying to collect? Yeah, it's always a challenge and there is lots of different methods for doing this. We we won't be a direct source for citizen science, but there is great, great projects. For example, iNaturalist and the Atlas of Living Australia that do collect citizen science data. And they have a process for if you have a sighting of a particular animal, you need to take a photo of it. You need to record its location. And there's a whole bunch of information that you need to fill out on that sighting. And so it means that even if you're not someone who necessarily feels like you can accurately identify what you're seeing, we are actually building in machine learning algorithms into these projects so that if you've taken a photo, we can increase the accuracy and understand and identify what you've seen as well. So there's lots of tools now being built into these citizen science projects that help with accuracy. And sometimes I know some academics and some conservationists who prefer not to because they need to make sure that they're following a certain protocol with that data being collected. But I think it's important to have the choice of being able to aggregate that information if you feel it's necessary or just look at customer-specific data if it's not relevant. So it's definitely a bolster. It's not always perfect. And, you know, it's not perfect when it's just conservation workers as well. It needs to be a choice that you can bolster the data with that as well. For anybody who's listening, you mentioned the name iNaturalist. For anybody who's not familiar, can you share what iNaturalist does? Yeah, sure. So iNaturalist is a a global project that encourages people to get out into nature and log species of plants, animals, insects, anything living. You can pretty much log it in iNaturalist. It's a fantastic project for really getting people engaged with nature and questioning what they're seeing around them. Like I mentioned, you can upload anything that's living. I recently did a project a few months ago and went out camping and pretty much just took hundreds and hundreds of photos of any different type of plant or animal I could see and you upload them in and you can identify it even down to if you know it's an animal you can say it's an animal if you know it's a plant you can say it's a plant if you can identify any more accurately that's great but then because it's a citizen science project there's lots of really informed and active ecologists in the platform that can then help you identify what it is and eventually it gets filtered through until it's pretty much all of them are identified down to the species and then they're uploaded into this global database of records of where plants and animals are seen. So it's a fantastic way of really getting an idea of how species are varying across time. So obviously there's more sightings of certain types of flowers in spring. There's a whole range of patterns that you can then identify when lots of people are out there recording this kind of information. Awesome. Fantastic. Okay, I want to circle back to data and filtering the data. Let's say I was a customer of Xylosystems and I hopped onto your platform, what is it that I would see and what is available to me? Is it something that's just relevant to the project that I'm working on or am I able to access all of the data that you've got? At the moment, we just released our beta platform last week and the current platform allows you to look at all of your customer data across multiple projects, whether that's by species or by project location, and aggregating that with open source data. We don't currently have any capability to share data across customers, 
But this is a really long-term project for us to encourage customers to share their data with others because, as we mentioned before, having that information being shared across projects is really what's going to add a lot of value to to the conservation work being done. It's just customer data being leveraged with our remote sensing partnerships and open source. And what you'll see is an overview dashboard of current status of projects, how much data you have and how is that being combined with open source data, population pulse checks. So our current platform really is a pulse check on how projects are going. And you can use our mapping tools to see how populations are changing over space across multiple project locations. And then what we're really excited about is also measuring the impact of these projects. So another thing I didn't mention earlier is that a big part of what we want to do is help conservation organizations do their conservation work, but also communicate that impact to stakeholders and funders of this work. And so a big part of what we want to do is transform all of this data that's being collected for projects into goals that we can track over time because that's a really big and important way of supporting conservation work by understanding its impact as well. So in terms of goals and projections, how do you guys work out, for example, a population of, let's say, kangaroos is this number in 2022 and we're projecting that it'll go up to double this number by however many years time? How do you guys work that out? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that we're working quite closely with customers with because it does depend on the project area, the actual species that we're working with. Ultimately, we're actually working backwards from larger global goals. So we're really excited for smaller conservation organizations to be thinking about how are they mapping to UN biodiversity goals and a whole range of larger projects in biodiversity. But breaking them down into conservation organization specific goals means exactly like you were saying, bolstering populations. It could also be mitigating risk in the environment. So for example, if some endangered species are threatened by pests, it could be trying to reduce pest populations by a certain percentage. It really does depend on what the goals of that project are and what is the funding there for. But again, if we can aggregate all that information and and track it, then we can see if there's any progress being made over time in a much more concise way than it's currently being done. The reason I asked that question was because a couple of years ago now, pre-pandemic, I was fortunate enough to meet one of the scientists who worked on the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone project. Amazing. Yeah, and I was blown away, right? Because they had modeled all of this stuff out where I think they put in a total of 31 wolves over two or three years into the national park. And they had modeled out what would happen with a population of 31 wolves and the kinds of changes in the ecology that would happen as a result of the reintroduction of wolves. And to see that presentation was quite awe-inspiring in a way. So yeah, I'm very curious how that pans out with a pure data platform like yours. But it sounds like you've got that sorted out on a project-by-project basis. Yeah, it's a project-by-project basis, but you're exactly right. I think understanding what the goals are means that we can then bring in exactly like you were saying modeling and scenario analysis and that's a really exciting frontier for ecology because there are so many factors that would affect a wolf or any kind of species impact over time but having those goals in place I think then 
it's less for internal. It can definitely be for internal goals, but also communicating that to outsiders because conservation organisations need as much money as they possibly can. And if you can communicate that in a really concise way, more money, more resources, more time means more impact. And that's what we're really chasing at the moment as well. Okay. Speaking of money and financial incentives, what happens if bad actors get a hold of data. So for example, there is a lot of money in poaching still, and it is still an activity that's present in many parts of the world. How would you guys try and stop this from happening? Is there a way that you can mitigate these effects? Yeah, definitely. And this is something that we've been very conscious of from day dot. You know, as soon as we have customer data in our hands, it's a huge responsibility on how we manage it. In terms of building our our cloud architecture, because all of our data will be based in the cloud. Having a security by design architecture has been really important to us, meaning that every database, every movement of data across the system has security as the priority. It's interesting, though, because because our goal is to really share information and have more of a flow of information, there does come a responsibility with permissions and who has access to that data. So there will be a relatively strict process for us to give other organizations permission if that happens from customer data to customer data and sharing that. And this is the same for citizen science projects. You know, if a citizen comes across a really rare endangered species and they log that in the platform, what happens is that if other individuals want to see that data, they don't get a precise location. It is very regional specific. So it's much more difficult for poachers or anyone with ill intentions to take advantage of that data. So there's ways of filtering and making it accessible without making it something that's easily taken advantage of as well. Perfect. Speaking of regionally aggregated data, is there ever a risk of two separate projects double counting in the same area? Yeah, and I think this is why a lot of organizations have just relied on their own resources and time to collect information. I went to a camera trap workshop a a few months ago where looking to create a national project for aggregating camera trap data. And there is that question of how can we implement other people's data and know that it's independent, that it's not overlapping with any other projects. I think part of that will come with open communication across projects as well. So knowing who's operating in the local areas, quite often these conservation organizations are aware of other projects happening. So I think that's part of it, understanding who's working where, but also making sure that all data that's collected is tagged as individual specific as possible. So a lot of these camera trap data records that are being collected can actually identify individuals by markings, a whole range of things. So you can make sure that the information that you're collecting is independent, but there is always that challenge and it's worth keeping in mind for these projects. All right. So I'm curious about the customers that you might have on the non-conservation side, the corporate bad boys. So what would somebody like that be looking for in Silo? Great question. Great question. At the moment, we are really angling as the new frontier for climate change accounting. So a lot of these organizations, it's now mandated to be thinking about carbon impacts and their emission of carbon as part of their projects, we are now tacking onto that 
thinking about biodiversity accounting. There is legislation coming down the line with new environment minister and a whole range of conversations coming up about biodiversity offsets that companies will need to start thinking more directly about how they are impacting biodiversity. And so we're jumping on that bandwagon and trying to find a way to make that as easy as possible because it is something that people are talking about. We've spent the last few months talking to over 50 corporate organizations, thinking about how they're tracking biodiversity and it's on their minds, but they don't know where to start because it is such a complex picture to monitor. So we're currently targeting land developers and construction because they have the most tangible direct impact on biodiversity with clearing of land and building of human infrastructure. So that's our first frontier, but we're also really excited down the track to be looking at the supply chain for consumer goods and fashion and retail and how do those organizations track their biodiversity impact? Because although it might not seem as tangible, they do definitely have an impact. Even the lithium and all the metals that we have in our phones and our everyday electronics, how do we measure that impact? So there's a whole range of really interesting applications that we can apply this to, but construction is definitely one of the most direct impacts that we're looking at. Interesting, because I would have thought that Australia being the country that it is, that mining would have been the first port of call. Can you give us a comparison between construction versus mining and why one over the other? Yeah, it's a good point. Our big targets that we've chatted to over the last few months have been mining companies, consulting companies and construction companies. I think mining definitely have a big piece of the puzzle in terms of thinking about land development. The reason we've decided to go with construction is because mining still have a lot of work to do in terms of reporting their impact in the carbon space. They still have a lot of work to do there. And that's been a bit more strategic on our end because companies that are still struggling with carbon, it's a big stretch to be thinking about biodiversity. So it is a timing thing with this as well, just like it was for carbon. It's only really recently that it's become a blanket rule that people need to be thinking about carbon. So it is a timing thing. And I think construction have been thinking about that because there is a lot of ecology assessments that they have to do already. There's a few examples of this. We've been talking to a few larger construction companies about projects that they've wanted to implement, but they've been delayed by, some of them have said two years before they can actually move ahead with any kind of development because of these ecological assessments they have to do on endangered species and the impact that they'll have long term. Okay, so if I'm a corporate client and I get access to Xylo Systems data, what do I get in return besides the data? Do I get some kind of certification that says, hey, I've complied with X, Y, and Z, or I have actually created a development that is biodiversity positive as opposed to detrimental. What happens that is like a gold star for a corporate client? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. There's definitely a few layers to this. Our initial prototype will be, we're calling it a, a pulse check of endangered species. So a big part of the initial assessment they need to be doing, is there any endangered species in the area? What's the current measure of biodiversity before any work is done? So that's our first protocol because that's the most time-consuming part of the project from what we've heard. But then from there, we're really excited to then, once they've got that understanding, thinking about, again, that scenario analysis of after projects are being built, how can they either offset that biodiversity or how can they reduce their impact? So, for example, wildlife corridors are a great way of reducing the biodiversity impact. So for people that don't know, wildlife corridors are 
patches of green or nature in developed areas where animals can move. So often when we do human development, for example, roads, we're creating little pockets of nature where animals need to move from one location to another. And an example is like a, a, a land bridge for animals to be able to travel across roads safely without getting hit by cars. Those kinds of things, although really simple, can have a great impact on populations in that area. So things like that where we can actually provide recommendations for if this project really needs to go ahead, what are the steps that you can take to reduce your impact and, and anything that's left over then offset as well. Okay. So let's say they implement these recommendations. How would you measure the success or otherwise of their implementation? Yeah, it's a great point. I think in terms of measuring impact and measuring a project success, it does come down to boiling down the impact of biodiversity to a number. And that's part of the sort of ethics that we're still tackling in this space about putting a dollar sign on biodiversity. It's definitely more comparative project. So I know a few projects, for example, that have been done looking at the area being developed for a particular development and thinking about essentially replicating that biodiversity in another area and making sure that the species and the diversity that they had in that area is offset somewhere else. But it's also thinking about that dollar value of this is the the dollar value of ecosystem services that you're destroying for this project, how can we support that somewhere else? So it's a really complicated one and it's still something that I think lots of people need to be having conversations about the long-term impacts of doing that. Okay, speaking of dollar values, you guys have thrown around a very large number. Would you care to enlighten our listeners what that large number is? Yeah, so this is something that really... Camille and I are wildlife warriors and we are diehards for keeping biodiversity for biodiversity's sake. But for people who aren't on the same page, biodiversity loss is a huge business issue. We have $44 trillion worth of ecosystem services globally. That means that we rely on biodiversity for a whole range of sources of value across the world. And so $44 trillion is what we stand to lose if we let biodiversity go down the drain. So it's a huge wake-up call for industries to be thinking about more longer term what their impacts are going to be and how they're going to derive value if we lose biodiversity. So looking towards the future of silo systems and the future of biodiversity, what are the next steps that you want to test out with the platform and with your customers? Yeah, we've got lots of plans. We're, we're ideas people. <laughs> we're full of ideas and not enough time. But I think the first step for us, it was got our two sides of the project being conservation and corporate. On the conservation side, really understanding the outputs that conservation organisations need. We have all of the data. We have all of the information. How is it most useful to them on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? And, and measuring that impact and testing the goals that they set is one of them. And on the corporate side, really understanding, again, what their goals are long term as well. Like we know that construction isn't going away. How can we come up with some really sustainable and regenerative goals that make sure that we can continue with business, but also keep biodiversity as a priority? So it's really something that I think we're excited to give people and customers and get it in their hands and get some feedback on because you never really know how applicable it is until it's being put to the test. And, and that's something that we're really conscious of. So lots of ideas, but it's all going to be shaped by customer feedback. And we're really excited by that. 
Yeah. And I think you mentioned earlier that timing is everything. So speaking of timing, in the last couple of weeks, the Australian federal government just announced that a good 30% of land is going to be returned to Indigenous ownership or Indigenous management. How are you guys leveraging that bit of news? Yeah, it's super exciting for us. I think it's a really clear step that the government is prioritising biodiversity and we're obviously hugely supportive of that. It's also a big responsibility. You know, that that's a huge piece of Australian land that needs now to be managed. And I think thinking about, again, the long-term goals and how that land can be managed both for cultural purposes but also for biodiversity and regeneration, those things go hand in hand. My, my co-founder, Camille, is Indigenous and it's really important for us to make sure that all of the work that we're doing is in alignment and respectful of Indigenous custodianship. So it's really exciting to work with organisations that are thinking about that as going hand in hand with Indigenous ownership and conservation. So hopefully a new frontier for Australian conservation. Okay, so you just dropped the hint that you're already working in partnership with some of these organisations. Is that right? Yep, yep. We're in talks with First Rangers. We really would love to work with Bush Heritage. Bush Heritage has got some fantastic on-the-ground work with Indigenous Rangers. There's still a lot of work to go here, though. I think we can be working much more closely with Indigenous communities because they have rightful ownership of the land and have also had phenomenal knowledge of conservation and ecology for thousands of years. So I think we can actually get a lot of value from working really closely together. And hopefully that's the new frontier for us to change the way we think about conservation as well. And on top of these Indigenous bodies, is there anybody else that you would love to partner with? Any dream people? Yeah, no, there's a whole range. You know, we're really excited in the next six months. We're hoping to go global. We're reaching out to the US as well. We're currently in talks with WWF. WWF are doing a lot of great work. Bush Heritage, as I mentioned. Also working really closely with governments. Governments are tricky because they are so multifaceted in where their attention is being divided. But I think governments have a great potential to have great impact on statewide as well as national impact. So working closely with governments. There's so many fantastic organizations out there and they're all doing their bit in their own way. So trying to unite forces, I think, is a really exciting prospect for us. All of this sounds like an enormous vision, which requires a ton of work. And you guys will probably have to scale up your team a little bit more to meet all these demands. And and you just have, actually. You've just signed up Freddie Lancia. What's his role in, in the team? Yeah, we're super excited. He's just in onboarding process at the moment, but he will be our lead data scientist. As I mentioned before, I've got a bit of a data science background, but he is an expert in augmented intelligence and machine learning. And so as I was mentioning before, we're really excited to be doing some forecasting and scenario analysis for all of this data and and he'll be in charge of that. So really leveling up our uh, sophistication in our analytics and making sure that we can provide the most helpful insights possible with this really complex data. So super excited to have him on board and things will move a lot faster. We have an extra pair of hands as well. Awesome. Okay. So now we're going to dive into the hypothetical realm. If everything goes right for you, what do you think the world looks like then? Well, we're not supposed to say this, but we're hoping in 50 years we'll be out of business. <laughs> our goal is to be a nature positive world. And that means that every aspect of our lives and businesses will be with the environment 
at its heart and the protection of the environment as a priority. Our moonshot goal is to have the top 100 endangered species off the endangered species list in the next 10 years. That's a super ambitious goal because these animals are being up against it in terms of all of the impacts that they're facing. But we really think that if we can act in a really collaborative and conscious way in how we work with impactors and conservers, that this can happen and it needs to happen quickly because, you know, as I mentioned before, species extinctions are accelerating. So we need to be acting quickly. Lofty goals to engineer your way into growth and then out of business. What's something that you guys have made a commitment to achieve this vision, whether yourself individually or as a team? Yeah, it's a good question because we've always focused on the output goal of getting species off the endangered species list. But I think we've realised, especially me, it's been over a year of me dedicating myself to Xylo, realised that this is our life's work. And it's honestly, it's what keeps us up at night in the best and the worst way possible. It's always on our minds. And I think having that kind of really impactful goal has been something that has really changed our lives in the way that our priorities are changing to work on Xylo. So it has been a really crazy journey over the last sort of nine months, 12 months of just like really digging in deep on this project to dedicate yourself time-wise, but also, like I said, both Camille and I have lots of ideas and projects and I think we're entrepreneurs at heart, but this is something that is way bigger than us and I think that keeps us working on this no matter what the cost is. Fantastic. Jada, I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. No, not a problem at all. I'd love to see where you guys end up and I've really enjoyed this chat. I'd love to check in with you guys in a year or so maybe and see how xylo systems and how our biodiversity globally is tracking at that stage how does that sound sounds fantastic looking forward to it fantastic and finally if anybody is interested in either experimenting with xylo or partnering with you guys or being a customer how can they reach you yeah, so you can check out our website. We've got an inquiry form on there, www.zylo.systems, or reach out to me. Give me an email. Uh, I'm at jada, J-A-D-A, at zylosystems.org. Looking forward to hearing from you. And thank you once again, Jada. And that's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm or DM me on Twitter at sean underscore AHD. Otherwise, stay tuned, subscribe, and learn what it's like before the success when what we've got is promise.